PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, I talk with Andrew Deemer about his book, Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. This week on PA Books, Andrew Deemer, author of Vigilance. Andrew Deemer is the author of Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. You say in the book that Still has been marginalized, sometimes even forgotten by histories of the movement. Why? What, what happened that he slipped out of people's minds? It's a combination of things, I think. Um, on one hand, the nature of the work that he did is a little bit less sexy than, than some of the things that we are accustomed to thinking of as the Underground Railroad. Uh, he's a record keeper, he's a coordinator, he's a networker. Um, so I think that work, I, I make the case that it's really important, but it's not necessarily the stuff that people have traditionally seen as the most exciting part of the Underground Railroad. The other thing is that I think he himself marginalized his story. Uh, he preferred to tell the stories of others. When he publishes his history of the Underground Railroad, he sees it as an opportunity to celebrate those who are fleeing from slavery themselves rather than the work of people like himself who were facilitating that work. So I think, you know, it's a combination of those two things that have led us to, um, to not truly appreciate how important William Still's work was. How well known was his role in the Underground Railroad during his life? So interestingly, it was quite well known. So even when he was doing this work in the 1850s, when he was helping uh, ferry fugitive slaves through Philadelphia, it was understood that he was the guy who was in charge of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. It was not this secret society the way that we sometimes think of the Underground Railroad. It was important that it be a public role because still had to raise money. People had to know that he was the person to come to. So he was certainly um, reasonably well-known in the 1850s. And then as it went on, um, he became even better known. He became a kind of spokesperson, uh, you know, historian of the Underground Railroad, and he certainly was well-known in that regard. Now, throughout the book, you quote uh, quite, a few, quite a bit of his correspondence. Was he an avid letter writer, and how much of that survives? So he, he absolutely was an avid letter writer. He was... Um, the nature of his work was that he had to write letters. Um, he was corresponding with this network that he was coordinating across the region and across the country. He had contacts with people in Canada where many of these fugitives uh, ultimately settled because that was the only place they could be safe from the fugitive slave law. Um, so he, he wrote tons and tons of letters, hundreds of letters in his lifetime. And many of them have survived. So his work letters, I think, are probably the best preserved. So the, the correspondence from the 1850s are, are well preserved in archives. Um, other kinds of correspondence are a little bit less well preserved. I think in part because uh, he lived his whole life in Philadelphia. The people who were closest to him, he didn't need to write letters to communicate with them. So there aren't 
too many letters to family members, for example. One of the correspondents signed his letters, Ham and Eggs. Who was he? So he was a, a, an enslaved person who was working with Still. Um, he was a Virginian, and he was a part of this network whereby Still was helping people uh, travel via steamships, railroads, by foot, by horse-drawn carriage, all sorts of ways. Um, some of them, especially as you can imagine, those operating in, in uh states where slavery was still legal, maintained a kind of anonymity via nicknames like this. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Where was he born? Where did he grow up? So he was born in rural South Jersey. So his parents had both been enslaved and they had escaped from slavery. His father was able to purchase his own freedom. His mother ran away, leaving behind her two eldest sons. They, uh, they fled to New Jersey, which was a state that was at the time in the process of abolishing slavery. And yet, of course, as a fugitive slave, Still's mother was still subject to uh, the capture of slave catchers. So they raised their family there, um, a huge family, 18 children, Still is the youngest of them. And uh, it's, it was a farming family, so Still grew up on a farm doing all this sorts of agricultural work. And then uh, when he came of age, when he was a young man, he moved to Philadelphia looking for, for more opportunity. What kind of an education did he have? A very limited formal education. So uh, there was a schoolhouse. Um, I suppose, like many farming families, that was a, a thing that you only did when the opportunity arose. So most of the year you were doing work with your family or you were working on neighboring farms. Um, but occasionally, sporadically, the still children would be able to go to the school. Uh, it seems that they experienced significant discrimination there. So this was a mostly white school where the school teachers were not exactly friendly to these black children in their midst. Um, so he, he only received uh, probably a few months worth of formal schooling over the course of his childhood. So he's really self-taught. He's really a, a, a sort of a, a, a reader throughout his life. Um, the work that he does, uh, improves his writing. So this is, um, this is something that he does as an individual as opposed to something that he's able to enjoy as a student in a school. Now, one of the books that you mentioned that he read was The Young Man's Own Book, which you call a classic text of 19th century self-improvement. Uh, what, what would he have found in that book? So all sorts of things about making oneself better. So this is a, a kind of classic narrative of the 19th century that people were, lots of people, white and black, were obsessed with this idea that you could improve yourself, that it was really about discipline, it was about something that each individual had within his own power to improve his life. Um, I think it's pretty clear that there are limits to that, but, but still is a true believer, still is a, a man who believes that it is up to him to control his own destiny, and so this would include things about how to behave, how to conduct oneself, um, avoiding pitfalls that could ruin your chances to rise in the world, uh, drinking, of course, lots of other things that might get in the way of the, the rise that's still envisioned for himself. You mentioned that he would go to Philadelphia. What, do we know why he chose Philadelphia? Well, it was, it was nearby, so um, it was the closest big city. Um, there was also a robust black community in Philadelphia, so that certainly appealed to him. But I think it's pretty clear that he came to Philadelphia for economic opportunity. Um, he felt like he was never going to achieve what he wanted to achieve 
living on the farm where he grew up, and so he went to Philadelphia looking for work. Now, you talk in the book about how 1844 was a, a year where there were riots in Philadelphia. What, what kind of a world did he find when he arrived in the city? So it's a, you know, it's a city that was growing explosively in this period in all sorts of ways. It's physical... Uh, geography is is increasing, so it's spilling over the boundaries of the original city laid out by William Penn. Um, that means that houses are being built, uh, people are moving to Philadelphia, both from the countryside, people like Still, but also people from out of the United States. So this is a period of great immigration from Ireland, from, from parts of what will become Germany. Um, so it's a, a sort of combustible mix of people coming from all sorts of places and having to learn how to live together. Now, you mentioned that there was a, a robust uh, African-American community in Philadelphia, uh, but Philadelphia is not too far from Delaware and Maryland, both of which were slave states at the time. How did that proximity affect this community? Well, the, the proximity is in part the reason for the growth of Philadelphia's black community. So many of those... Um, similar to the Still family. So many of the people who end up as the parts of, of Philadelphia's black community came from the Upper South, places that were where slavery was still legal, but where slavery was changing and where significant numbers of people were becoming emancipated. Many of those people didn't remain behind. Um, these are also places where people are able to run away. So it's, it's uh, far more difficult to run away from, say, Georgia than it is from Delaware. So significant numbers of people are fleeing states where slavery is still legal and finding refuge in the black community of Philadelphia. Once he arrived, what kind of work did he find? So all sorts of work. Um, so in Philadelphia, even though there is this, this uh, vital black community, economic opportunities for African-Americans are severely limited. So the best paying work is not open for the most part to African-Americans. And so still, um, he very much didn't want to take the kind of work that was most often available to African-Americans, which was service work, so household servants work. Um, so he, he went looking for, uh, he worked in brick making, he started small businesses. This was often a route for some kind of independence and prosperity for African-Americans. So he operated a, a, an oyster seller briefly, he operated a used clothing shop briefly. None of that proved particularly lucrative to him, and, and in some cases, he actually lost the meager savings he had acquired. And so reluctantly, he eventually ended up taking that work that he didn't want to take, which was household servants. And you mentioned in the book that, that uh, some of the people he was working for were encouraging him to read and, and uh, making sure he had time to, to do things outside of his responsibilities for them. That's right. This was a kind of unexpected happenstance for him, um, but quite fortunate. So, so the woman that he ends up working for, for the longest period, was really sympathetic to him. She wasn't probably what we would call an abolitionist per se, but she also was sympathetic to black people in Philadelphia. She, um, especially when William still showed his interest in self-improvement, she encouraged that, she provided books, she provided more and more responsibility for him. So this was certainly a, a fortunate circumstance for him. So as he's trying some of these different jobs and different business opportunities, at what point does he become involved in the abolition movement? So here, you know, it's a little bit tricky to, to draw a clear line because as a child, he had, he had grown up in an abolitionist family. So he tells of 
helping fugitive slaves escape when he was a child, helping a family member ferry fugitive slaves to, uh, to safety in New Jersey growing up. Before he moves to Philadelphia, uh, once he begins to make money, uh, he, he subscribes to abolitionist newspapers. So I think he always thought of himself as a part of this movement. And when he comes to Philadelphia, he's working in what was called the Moral Reform Retreat, which was a part of a, an effort to kind of help uh, impoverished African Americans. So he's always a part of this movement. But, you know, it's really in 1847 when he sees an advertisement or he's, he's made aware of an advertisement of a position open in the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society that he really joins it as a, a paid abolitionist, as someone who can uh, devote his full time to the abolitionist movement. How did the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society fit into the larger landscape of the abolition movement? So the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society was affiliated with what, um, what would be known as Garrisonian abolitionism. This was kind of the most radical, uh, among the most radical varieties of abolition. Um, for the most part, uh, so, so emphasized equality as well as ending slavery, so that it was an immediate calling for the immediate end of slavery, but also for full equality for those who became emancipated. Um, so he, he was, uh, it was a part of that branch as distinguished from the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which is an older organization, which was in many cases a little bit more moderate, so emphasized kind of legal means of fighting slavery rather than the kind of inflammatory assault on slavery that an organization like the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society engaged in. Though there was significant overlap, there were people who belonged to both of these societies. Now, one of the figures that he would know there was Miller McKim. Who was he? So he was a, a white man who was initially a, a preacher, a minister, and became involved in the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society and eventually became wholly committed to it. Um, he became uh, still essentially boss. He was a part of the, the Vigilance Committee, which was the, the institution that still is uh, the most pivotal member of in aiding fugitive slaves. So McKim is sort of the guy who brings him into this formal part of the abolition movement. Now, you say in, uh, in the book that historians identify the clerk as a quintessential figure of the 19th century city. What was so important about clerks? So clerks, I mean, clerk is a kind of catch-all phrase. Uh, I suppose it still is today, but it was in the 19th century where it, it encompassed lots of different work. But what it all has in common is that it is a, a job that is, is, uh, is sort of serving this exploding urban economy, right? That, that there are businessmen, there are merchants, people are buying and selling things. All of this has to be recorded. All of this has to be kept track of. Um, that's the work of clerks, right? Clerks are, are keeping track of all these things that are being bought and sold. Um, it's a class of usually almost exclusively young white men, so still is, is extremely rare in that he's a, a black man who has this job. But it's a class of young white men who see clerking as an opportunity to rise in the world. And so I think this is part of what really appeals to Still, that he sees this. Now, it's a, it, he's clerking in a particular way for the anti-slavery movement, um, but I think he always saw it as, as a, a step up in the world as well. So you mentioned that he was part of the Vigilance Committee. 
Uh, was that set up specifically to deal with enslaved people who had escaped? That's its primary goal. I think more broadly, it's, it's protecting um, African Americans who are at risk in all sorts of ways. So in this period, uh, there's a robust kidnapping. There are kidnapping rings, right? So, so free black people who legally are free can still be kidnapped and sold into slavery, and it's often quite difficult for them to prove their legal status. So the Vigilance Committee is, is set up to protect people like that, but yes, primarily the Vigilance Committee's responsibility is to aid fugitive slaves in whatever means are required. So if, if somebody who had escaped from slavery arrived at William Still's office or his doorstep, uh, what would William do? So the first thing that he would do was take down that person's name and information. So he was, again, to come back to his role as a, as a clerk, he's a record keeper. Those records are going to serve a couple of purposes. Um, one is that it is a way of keeping track of the money that will be spent on this work. It's also a means of ensuring that people are not trying to take advantage of the Vigilance Committee. So as I mentioned, Times are very tough for free black people in places like Philadelphia. There isn't a ton of work, and there's a great incentive to, um, to sort of pass one's self off as a fugitive slave in order to get some money from the Vigilance Committee. So his record keeping helps uh, deal with that, helps to kind of verify that this person has a story that, that sort of matches up to, to what could be expected. And then the last thing that these records do is that um, in the long run, still hopes that they will help people reconnect. So running away from slavery often means leaving behind family members, severing ties that one has built over the course of a lifetime. His hope is that with these records that, that he can bring people together who have been torn apart by slavery. How risky was it for him to be keeping these types of records? So he was certainly breaking the law. So the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which was a much stronger, more um, vigorous kind of fugitive slave law than when it come before, criminalized not just the fugitive slaves themselves, but the people who aided them and, and actually mandated the, the aid in recovering fugitive slaves. So still was certainly violating that law and potentially could have been prosecuted for it. Um, I think probably more important these records posed a risk or potentially posed a risk to, uh, to fugitive slaves themselves. So, so that was something that he was always attuned to. Um, so this was risky business that he was engaged in, but he felt like he and the, the organization felt like it was important enough to keep these records that they were willing to take that risk. Now, one of the fugitive slaves uh, was a man named Henry Box Brown. Why Box? So Henry Brown was a kind of typical, he offers a kind of typical story of what urban slavery was like in the late 1840s. So he was enslaved in Richmond, Virginia, and his master uh, hired him out to work in a tobacco factory. And as was often the case in this situation, uh, Henry Brown was married to a woman who was owned by someone else. And because of that, her her master decided to sell her and the the Browns' children, and there was nothing that that Henry could do about it. He he tells this kind of heartrending story about watching his family get marched down the street in chains, and it was at this moment that Henry decides that 
there's nothing holding him anymore, and he's willing to take the risk of running away, which is easier said than done. Richmond is not very close to Philadelphia, and so he concocts a, a kind of ingenious plan whereby a white associate is willing to box him up in this wooden crate, uh, carve a little hole in it so he can breathe, provide him with a little bit of water, and ship him to Philadelphia. And so uh, this is something that is feasible in the late 1840s because transportation has made this kind of trip a little bit quicker. So it's really only going to take 24 hours or so. But that's going to be an excruciating 24 hours. At one point, Henry Brown is flipped up on his head. And so he, he spends a part of this journey uncomfortably uh, suspended on his shoulder, on his neck. But eventually, he arrives in Philadelphia. Associates of Still are able to retrieve this box and bring it to the anti-slavery office, where Still and a couple of these other men huddle around, anticipating, hoping that Henry Brown has survived this trip. And when they, they knock, they hear his voice, they, they pry open the crate, and, and Henry Brown stands up and forever after would be known as Henry Box Brown. Now, one of the categories of figures that, that appear throughout the book are slave catchers. Was that a profession? Did people work <clears throat> at, at being slave catchers? So some did. Some were entirely slave catchers. It was quite lucrative to do so. There were others who were part-time, though. So in Philadelphia, significant numbers of people who were employed by the police department would also, as a kind of a part-time gig, recover fugitive slaves. So it's a mix of, of sort of you know, there are agencies, there are little businesses of people that coordinate fugitive slave capture, but there are also these entrepreneurial policemen who are willing to, to spend some time capturing fugitive slaves just to make some money on the side. Now, uh, you'd mentioned kidnapping of people, and, and there was a, a bill in 1847, an anti-kidnapping bill that was signed. Uh, for somebody who was, say, a free African-American, how at risk were they of being kidnapped? So it really varied on the person. So the people who were most vulnerable were children. So children were the ones who are most commonly kidnapped. Um, others, you know, people would often put themselves in positions where they would become vulnerable. A kind of classic case is where someone who is desperate for work is willing to go someplace and meet someone that they don't know in order to find this job and and when they get there, you know, it's some somewhere isolated and they, they're hit over the head and they're thrown into the the hold of a ship and taken south. Um, so some people are more at risk than others, but really everyone, all black people in in Pennsylvania and certainly in Philadelphia are at risk to some degree. Um, most people in the North don't have what we would call freedom papers. So if you were a free black person in a slave state, you had papers documenting that you had become emancipated and proving your status. Most people in the North didn't have this paperwork. And so if you were accused of being a fugitive slave, um, you basically had to find other kinds of evidence that you weren't. You know, the, the burden of proof was typically on the accused fugitive to find people who could testify and to show that so-and-so lived here, you know, 20 years ago and that they were always seen to be a free man. So certainly um, everyone was at risk. Was still involved in those types of cases? So if somebody was captured, would, would he use his network to try to help them in the court? Yes, yes. So the number of cases where um, people are accused of being fugitive slaves and 
you know, here, you know, still is a part of a much bigger picture. So I think it's really about the, the black community in Philadelphia mobilizes in order to help people in these instances, but, but still is certainly a part of that. Now, one of those figures was Jane Johnson. Who was her? Who was, who was she? So Jane Johnson was a personal slave to a, uh, a man named Wheeler, who was the, uh, the minister to the nation of Nicaragua. So uh, Nicaragua was particularly important in this period. In this period, slaveholders were looking to expand into the Caribbean. Um, at the very least, they wanted to make sure that these new nations of the Caribbean were not a threat to slavery. So when many of these Latin American countries attained their independence, they abolished slavery, and slaveholders who had a great deal of pull in the U.S. government were using all of their power to make sure that there was as much, there were as many slave-friendly places in the Caribbean as possible. And so Wheeler's position was really important. He was traveling from Washington, D.C., where he had dined that night before with the president of the United States, and he was passing through Philadelphia on his way to New York, where he would get a ship to his post in Nicaragua. While in Philadelphia, they paused for a few hours to wait for the ferry that would take them across the river, where they would catch that train to New York. And at this moment, Wheeler made a, a fatal error. He left Jane briefly alone in their room, and she got word somehow to still. It seems like she passed a note, perhaps, to a black maid who was working in this in the hotel. Um, but in any case, a, a note ends up on Still's desk saying, come quickly, there is a woman who needs your help, and she's staying at Bloodgood's Hotel, which is, which is where, um, where Wheeler was staying at the moment. And so Still and an ally, Passamore Williamson, a white man, the only white man on the acting committee of the Vigilance Committee, they make their way, they run to, uh, to Bloodgood's, they, they find that Jane Johnson has left, and so they, they go down to the docks where they find her on this ferry about to leave to cross the river to New Jersey. They approach Jane and they inform her that her presence on Pennsylvania soil has made her free. So in Pennsylvania, the very act of bringing an enslaved person into Pennsylvania at this point made that person free. But of course, if she didn't leave her master, he, she was going to essentially become re-enslaved. And so they told her that she needed to take this moment in her hands and leave her master, that, that they couldn't do this for her. When she stepped towards them, bringing her two children with her, her master, Wheeler, attempts to seize her and prevent her from doing this. And at this moment, a, a group of black men who had begun uh, collecting around the scene that was being made here closed in and grabbed Wheeler and prevented him from holding on to Jane Johnson, still then spirits her away, puts her in a carriage, takes her ultimately to his house to stay overnight, and then puts her on a train for New York, where he uh, basically puts her in touch with the same network that he used for the Underground Railroad. Now, uh, one of the key figures of the abolition movement in the Philadelphia area was Lucretia Mott. And you say in the book that notable among the abolitionist critics of the Vigilance Committee was Lucretia Mott. But why was she a critic of the committee? So here it's interesting because Mott is not per se, I mean, she's certainly not critical of the work of helping fugitive slaves. So she herself is known to help fugitive slaves, to shelter fugitive slaves. 
Here, it's, a, it's more about priorities. So I think people like Lucretia Mott often felt like a disproportionate amount of time and money and effort was being put into helping this very small segment of enslaved people while millions of enslaved people remained in the South where they had no chance of running away. And, and so it was really a question of priorities for her. Um, though she, you know, so, so it was a soft criticism, I would say. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books Podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, one, one of the more, perhaps more dramatic elements of Still's story is how he reconnected with his brother, Peter. Can you tell that story? Sure. So, so because Still was, um, was at the center of this vast network, people came to him for all sorts of reasons. So, so obviously they came to him if they needed help escaping from slavery, but in some cases people just came to him for information. It was, uh, it was known that he you know, was keeping information even before he was necessarily keeping the formal records that we would see later. And so this man walked into his office one evening telling him this story about how he had been separated from his family as a small child, and he had eventually been able to purchase his own freedom and after he did that, he had come north looking for his family, but he didn't really know much about the family. He, he, uh, he knew that they lived somewhere along the Delaware River, and so that brought him to Philadelphia. But uh, beyond that, he didn't have too many details. And so, you know, still heard this, and he probably wasn't that surprised. This, this was a story that he heard many times. As I mentioned, lots of families were separated by slavery. And so he kind of dutifully begins asking questions of this, this stranger. But when the stranger mentions his parents' names, all of a sudden still begins to connect the dots. His parents had the same names. He, he begins to hear um, details from this man that begin to make still realize that this was his long lost brother, the, the brother that his that the that still's mother had left behind in Maryland and, and had expected never to see again. And so this sort of this miraculous, seemingly miraculous reconciliation between these two brothers, but to me is, is less miraculous when we understand the nature of Still's work, right? That, that it's, it's miraculous these men came together, but if, if Peter Still, and that was the brother's name, was going to come to Philadelphia, he was going to come to William's office, whether he knew that was his brother or not. Uh, let's talk about politics and the political affiliation. Uh, he now, in Pennsylvania at that time, African-Americans could not vote, but uh, how attentive was he to politics and uh, did he have an alignment with a particular party? So um, in Pennsylvania, the, the state had ratified a constitution in 1838 that uh, disenfranchised black people. So prior to that, it was, it was sort of uneven whether or not black people could vote, but certainly uh, still is unable to vote in the 40s and 50s and, and most of the 60s. Um, he does follow politics, though. So I'd mentioned that he's a part of this Garrisonian wing of the abolitionist movement. For the most part, the leadership of that movement was skeptical. I would say the white leadership of that movement was skeptical and often downright critical of electoral politics. They saw that electoral politics was um, a sort of in cooperating with this corrupt 
slaveholding government. You became complicit in this. Um, most African Americans, I would say, even if they were associated with Garrisonianism, didn't quite see it this way. And, and I would put Still in this class. So Still is a, a very careful student of the rise of the Republican Party in the 1850s. This is the party that is uh, committed to stopping the expansion of slavery. Uh, it is not an abolitionist party, right? So it, it is. Uh, it insists that it is not that the federal government doesn't have the power, for example, to emancipate slaves in the South. Um, but nevertheless, I think most black abolitionists, and, and indeed most abolitionists, see this as a positive development. It's not far enough. It's not as far as they would like to go, but it's it's an improvement. So still is a, a careful student of the rise of the Republican Party. He's um, He writes letters to newspapers talking about this as a positive thing and, and celebrating the rise of the Republican Party. Eventually, he's going to become critical of the Republican Party. So later in his life, um, he will break with the Republican Party and he will uh, at least tentatively support alternatives to the Republican Party, not always the Democratic Party, but sometimes other independent parties. Um, so he's never a party man. He's never a partisan in that regard, but he certainly is a careful student of politics. And you mentioned uh, later in the book where you're talking about uh, some of the disillusionment that he had. Uh, you say that Still instead put his faith not in parties, but rather in the cluster of ideas that came to be called American liberalism. Uh, this cluster of ideas, was this something that had not formalized into an organized ideology at that point? Um, I mean, here I think, you know, there are lots of writers that we might associate with liberalism. You know, it's, and again, I think we, we need to distinguish to a certain extent the way that we tend to use this term today from the way it was used in the 19th century. I think what I would say about Still's ideology here is that um, this is this is part of his anti-partyism, right? I think he, he doesn't put a lot of faith in parties. Um, he believes in the individual. He believes in, this connects, I think, back to what we were talking about earlier with his, uh, his belief in the individual's power to rise in the world if, if you're disciplined, if you are committed, if you focus. Um, to him, that's the essence of liberalism, that there's a kind of rational approach to, um, to changing the world, uh, wherein individuals can have this influence upon the world around them. Um, to him, parties can sometimes be a useful tool in bringing about some of these change, but some of these changes, but there's always a level of suspicion. Now, one of the things that's mentioned several times in the book is the, the violence of white mobs directed at African-Americans. And, and you say that African-Americans frequently faced violent white mobs who policed the city's public spaces. And the city's small black middle class was a particular target of these mobs. Uh, how, how frequent was this uh, during that time period? So these sorts of mobs were far more frequent in the 30s and the early 40s, the period before still came to Philadelphia. So he really comes to Philadelphia entering into the city that has a reputation for, you know, I would say every couple of years we have a major incident of mass violence directed towards African Americans, and that doesn't even include the small-scale violence and intimidation that African Americans dealt with on a, a almost daily basis. Um, so this is something that was really prevalent in the 30s and 40s, but I think one of the interesting things about Still's story is that, that things are changing in the 1850s, and in part that helps explain 
why still is able to be successful in the vigilance committee work and the, 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 the work aiding fugitive slaves that he does, um, and that he's able to do that somewhat publicly. Um, one of the stories of the 1850s is that that black community that was beleaguered in the 30s and 40s and constantly under assault is becoming more assertive. It is becoming more willing to organize, to publicly demonstrate in the streets, and in fact to use violence to protect fugitive slaves explicitly or implicitly, right, to, to maybe gather outside a courtroom when the fate of a fugitive slave is being determined as an implicit threat for what might happen if that person is sent back to slavery. These are things that are happening in the 1850s more frequently. So we can see, I think, that the black community of Philadelphia is sort of organizing in a way that counteracts some of that white violence. Now, one of the key incidents uh, in, of related to the abolition movement in the late 1850s was John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, how well did William still know John Brown? So, I mean, they knew each other reasonably well. They met on multiple occasions. And certainly, John Brown knew still by reputation. And so when he came to Philadelphia looking for allies in planning and executing this raid on, on Harper's Ferry, still is at the top of his list. And so he meets with this small group of black leaders. Um, uh, Frederick Douglass is there, even though he's not a Philadelphian. But but some, some of the big names in the black leadership in Philadelphia, including still, are there. And uh, John Brown lays out his plan and he asks for advice. I think he was particularly interested in Still's advice because Still, more than anyone else, understood this kind of nebulous borderland between the free state of Pennsylvania and the slave state of Maryland and Virginia. And so, um, you know, Brown is eager to get Still's aid. Still, we don't know exactly what he told him. Uh, probably gave him some advice, but ultimately was unconvinced that this was going to be an effective way of fighting slavery. What did uh, William Still think of Abraham Lincoln? So I think, you know, here again, this, this fits into Still's larger approach to the Republican Party, right? So, so uh, Lincoln is elected at the head of the Republican Party in 1860, and Still is, is pleased, right? Still is, applauds this development, and yet I, I think we can also see still as a part of this effort on the part of black abolitionists to push Lincoln, right? That, that there's always this sense that Lincoln's not going far enough, that we need to hold his feet to the fire, and so, so still is certainly a part of that group of black leaders who, um, you know, publicly are trying to urge Lincoln to be more aggressive in regard to, let's say, emancipating slaves or enlisting black troops, things like that. How did the breakout of the Civil War affect uh, his work on uh, working on the Underground Railroad? So he left the, the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society about the same time that the Civil War was starting. Um, fugitive slaves continued to flee bondage during the Civil War, but for the most part, the kind of work that still was doing became less important. So. The very early part of the war, the fugitive slave laws being still being enforced, but very quickly it becomes clear that that's not going to happen. So um, once people are able to escape from slavery, there's less chance that they will be returned, and that makes Still's work less important. Um, he moved away. You know, he, he left the the anti-slavery society behind, um, in part because he wanted to focus on making money. Um, he starts a business 
initially it's a stove business with a little bit of a coal business on the side, but very quickly it becomes clear that the coal business is going to make him the most money. And, and so he really is, is focusing on growing this business in the 1860s, though he continues to be drawn back into, if not the Underground Railroad, other, other parts of the abolitionist movement. So he's, he's raising money for refugees from slavery. He is, um, he's helping fund schools that are being built in the South for freed men and women. So he's doing other kinds of, of work to participate in the Civil War, but he is, is really focusing on his business at that point. Now, part of his participation was uh, his role as a settler at Camp William Penn. What was Camp William Penn and what was still doing there? So this was the, um, the camp where soldiers were being trained out in the, it's in the suburbs of, of, of Philadelphia, what's, what's now in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, huge numbers of African-American soldiers were being trained there. And so still was asked to serve as, as, as you mentioned, the sutler, which is essentially a shopkeeper who is associated with either a camp, in Still's case, sometimes sutlers will travel with armies. Essentially, the sutler's role is to um, provide things that the army doesn't provide. So let's say razors or writing implements or um, maybe a you know piece of clothing that isn't issued by the government that that someone might want. So that's the kind of stuff that the sutler provides. It is a position that was often used for corrupt purposes. So so people um, sometimes could take advantage of this this position. And so I think that's particularly why Still was asked. He had this this reputation as as an upright moral person who could be trusted with the, with this responsibility. And so I think. Um, that was probably why he was asked to, uh, to take on this role. Now, I want to ask you about a, a term that was common uh, in the mid-1800s, uh, the term slave power. What, what did that mean at the time? So the, the, the concept of the slave power was that slave owning had given to the South a disproportionate amount of power that it used to dominate, especially the federal government, but, but all levels of government. Um, so the, the classic example, or maybe the foundation of the slave power, is the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, which grants to states uh, more representation in the House and in the Electoral College than they would have if they didn't have slaves. Um, so, you know, the fruits of this, I think we see, if you look at who is the, the president for the first, you know, four decades of the nation's existence over and over again. It's these men from slaveholding states. You know, we get a few New Englanders thrown in there very briefly, but it, it's really, um, the federal government really is dominated by Southerners for the first 50 years of its existence. In the eyes of many Northerners, this prevented the government from doing the things that they felt it needed to do. And so the slave power, the, the, the argument that there is this slave power becomes an anti-slavery argument that isn't dependent upon any kind of moral opposition to slavery or any kind of sympathy for enslaved people themselves. Um, slavery is a threat to us, and it's, you know, us in this case being white Northerners, because it takes power away from us and gives it to white Southerners, you may or may not be opposed morally to slavery to buy into this idea of the slave power. So it's a really powerful tool that, um, 
political parties like the Republican Party are organizing around. It's an appeal that they can make to people who don't necessarily care that much about enslaved people. Now, William still seemed to have uh, quite a few conflicts with other members of the abolition movement. Uh, you mentioned a few of the different uh, conflicts that showed up. Uh, can you talk about Octavius Caddo? He was a significant figure in Philadelphia for a period of time, but they didn't always get along. What, what was their relationship like? Yeah, so um, Caddo is this guy who is um, he's the son of an important black minister who was, you know, worked with Still. So he's from a, a slightly younger generation than Still, maybe not a full generation, but but a little bit younger. Um, so so that I think creates some tension. Um, by the time Caddo is rising onto the scene, so he's he's uh, really important in raising black troops in Philadelphia. He becomes a, an activist in, um, you know, in particular, the, the place where Still and Caddo become, uh, come to odds with each other is in the fight to desegregate the streetcars in Philadelphia. So um, this is something that Still begins actively engaging in in 1859, but it's only going to pick up speed after the end of the Civil War. For much of this, you know, so we can look at this sort of eight years where at least still was engaged in this fight to end streetcar segregation. For much of that time, they're working together. Um, still founds a, an organization, the Civil Statistical and S Social Association. Caddo is a member. He, he attends meetings. So they're working together using various means to try to bring about desegregation. Um, but there was always tension. There was sort of personal tension between Still and Caddo. So as it turns out, um, Caddo had had an affair with this young woman who lived in the Still's boarding house. So the, Still and his wife operated a boarding house, and this young woman was uh, worked there as a housekeeper. Caddo had an affair with her, and, and they had a child together out of wedlock, and that child died in infancy. Um, I think this is something, still never wrote about this, so this is not something that he talks about, but I think almost certainly soured their relationship, still is, is a very upright moral person, a family man, and I, I can't imagine that he felt like this was an appropriate way for someone of, of Caddo's position to behave. Um, Caddo also was engaged, uh, you know, he, he liked to play baseball, he liked to drink and smoke cigars, um, probably a more fun person to be around than William Still. Um, but still really felt like, again, especially as black leaders who were judged uh, by the white community around them very harshly, he felt like someone like Caddo wasn't behaving up to the standards that he expected. So there was this personal tension. But then at the end of this streetcar battle, when they actually succeed and they're having this celebration, um, there is a, a huge showdown between various people trying to claim credit for this. Um, people, not Caddo per se, but, but uh, Jacob White, who's a friend of Caddo, an associate, basically denounces Still and says that Still wasn't in favor of desegregating the streetcars and he was actually opposing it, um, which, which is, is preposterous, but certainly Still gets defensive. And, and I think this, this leads to a break between the two men that, that was never really repaired. Now, we talked earlier about uh, the book that uh, William Still would write, and it's perhaps maybe his greatest legacy is, is this documentation. Oh, why did he decide to write the book when he did? So um, on one hand, he was asked. So he was asked by the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society to write this book. But I think 
the evidence suggests to me that he had already decided to write this book, that he had already started thinking about it and collecting these records that he had been saving over the years, still had had become a storyteller of the Underground Railroad. I talked about how in the 1850s he was known as the leader of the Underground Railroad. He actually published accounts of the Underground Railroad during the 1850s. So in the midst of, of helping fugitive slaves escape, he would periodically write articles for the newspaper in which he would talk in very veiled terms. He could never tell details, never gave away anything that would endanger the fugitives that he was describing. Um, but this was an important part to him of, of raising the profile of the Underground Railroad, of trying to get people on board with contributing money, et cetera. And so this kind of segued into still becoming the kind of unofficial spokesperson of the Underground Railroad, the unofficial storyteller. And so he was called upon in the 60s and uh, the 70s to, to, to lecture and to tell these stories of the Underground Railroad. And so it was a kind of natural progression for him to want to tell these stories. But I think he really also was committed to getting the story right from his perspective. He was committed to the idea that uh, people were already beginning to talk about the Underground Railroad as this thing that was mostly the work of kind-hearted white people who were helping fugitive slaves. And that, of course, wasn't Still's experience. He had all sorts of white allies, but from Still's perspective, this was mostly a black endeavor. This was something that was really um, made possible by the work of the black community around him in places like Philadelphia, but elsewhere as well. Uh, but even more important than that, Still wanted to be sure that the story of the Underground Railroad centered the story of fugitive slaves themselves, right? These were not still insisted people who were being rescued. These were people who were seizing control of their own lives, and that was the most important part of the story that he wanted to tell. So when he compiles this, you know, 800-page book, it really is over and over again the story of enslaved people finding opportunities to seek freedom as opposed to the story of men like Still who helped make that possible. How was his book received at the time? So uh, it sells quite well. So he um, he's actively engaged in the selling of this book. He creates a vast network of, of people who travel around the country and sell it directly. So again, this is this reflects still the, the man who wants to have his hands on everything. He wants to be sure that this is sold his way. He wants to be sure that the binding of these books is beautiful. You know, so there's real attention to making sure these are wonderful objects that families are going to want to have. So, um, you know, it's quite successful in, in selling it through this vast network of agents. Now, you talk about, uh, actually quote him talking about one of his influences, and that was Macaulay's History of England. Why, why was that book significant for him? So I think, you know, for Still, again, Still is an autodidact. He's someone who is teaching himself how to read and write. Um, he's teaching himself how to be a historian. He doesn't have any training about being a historian. And so he goes to this work of history that at the time was really popular. Lots of Americans read this, this book, which was a kind of sweeping history of the English nation. Um, for still, it was a model for how to write. So how do you write vigorous, popular prose? Um, so I think, you know, the kind of storytelling that Macaulay engages in was an important model for still. 
the overall sweep of it too, I think, is something that's still wanted to capture. So Macaulay's, you know, really looking at this progressive vision, uh, progressive in the sense that England is progressing from one stage of its existence to another. This is what historians sometimes call the Whig version of history, of history as the story of progress. I think that really appeals to Still. Still likes to see, he wants to see history as a story of progress, and I think he sees his book as the story of progress on a an aggregate basis, but also on an individual basis, that these individuals are making these remarkable journeys from slavery to freedom. Now, uh, William Still's coal business uh, results in him becoming a wealthy man. Uh, how important was philanthropy to him? So it was, it was uh, tremendously important. So Still um, had always envisioned success as something that brought with it tremendous responsibilities. Um, he was never someone who was looking to, he's not someone who lives particularly extravagantly. So as much money as he makes, certainly he's able to, to live more comfortably than he did, let's say, in the 1840s. Um, but he always saw his own progress as something that he had to turn to helping the race um, and also as something that reflected well on all black people, right? So um, still always understood that um, the majority of white people felt like African-Americans were inferior. Even those who were sympathetic to the anti-slavery cause often felt like on a certain level African-Americans were inferior, that they were incapable of rising in the world in the way that still envisioned himself rising. And so his, his economic success fueled both his philanthropy that, you know, he used to pay for uh, helping orphans, helping uh, older African-American people who didn't have money to support themselves. These are the kinds of causes he supported. So, so the philanthropy was one part of the, the kind of broader significance of his economic success. But the other part was that he always understood himself as a model, as, as someone who could disprove these pernicious white supremacist ideas about the capabilities of African-Americans. Now, part of his philanthropy was supporting uh, black artists and intellectuals. Who were some of the figures that he knew and, and uh, helped out? So um, they often came to him via the abolitionist movement. So the abolitionist movement is this kind of broad base. You know, obviously it's focused particularly on uh, fighting slavery, but it also takes into it this broader effort to improve the lives of African-Americans, and that included promoting art and literature. And so I, I think that probably the two most prominent and the two who are closest to still would be, on one hand, um, William Wells Brown, so uh, a man who is a fugitive slave who becomes a close friend of Still, who is an author, he's a novelist, he writes uh, his own narrative, he writes, uh, you know, a sort of story about the progress of African Americans in general. So still is very supportive of Brown. Um, and then also Frances Ellen Watkins, later Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a black woman who is a very close friend of Still's family, still actually names one of his daughters, Ella, after Frances Ellen Watkins. And um, she's a poet, a writer, a speaker, uh, an abolitionist, and is, a, is absolutely, still is absolutely a patron of her. He, uh, she stays with him when she's traveling through Philadelphia. Um, 
He promotes her both in print and to people that he knows. He writes letters talking about her as this really important writer. So those are probably the two most prominent artists that still is associated with. At the beginning, we, we talked about how he had, had become marginalized and sometimes forgotten uh, in the history of this movement. Uh, is there an effort now with your book and other, perhaps others to kind of bring his memory back into the public consciousness? So I think so. You know, it's it's always dangerous when we talk about people being forgotten, right? When we ever when we talk about people being forgotten, we should follow that up by saying forgotten by whom. And I think the story of William Still has never, there are people who have always kept the story of William Still alive. So the Still family, for example, has been really important in keeping this story alive. However, you know, beyond that, you know, and maybe beyond the region, I think here in Philadelphia, um, Still perhaps is a little bit better known than he is elsewhere. But I have been surprised talking to historians, even historians of this period, Often when you mention William Still's name, it rings a bell, but they can't quite figure out who he was, right? And I think the reason is because he's he's everywhere. If you open up a book about this period, about anti-slavery in this period, Still's in there, either as a source or he's mentioned showing up at one of these important events. But because he's not always front and center, I think people have forgotten and and maybe even more have never quite known how to place him. Um, okay, he's there, but why is he there? What is he doing? Um, okay, he's keeping these records. How important were those records? So this book was really, to me, an effort to, to try to make sense of that, right? To try to figure out what Still was actually doing. We knew he was there, but let's figure out how important he was. Um, so certainly, you know, I would like to raise Still's profile. I think, in general, there's a reading public that is more and more interested in these kinds of stories. I think... Um, you know, we see uh, recent films about the Underground Railroad. We see, you know, other books talking about this. So I, I think there is a an interest in this subject, and I think still is definitely someone we should, as a as a country, and and you know, I'm a Philadelphian, so as a city, I think we need to to do a better job celebrating him. So. Um, there's talk right now of a statue for Harriet Tubman, and that absolutely needs to happen. Tubman was a close associate of Still. She was a Philadelphian, and um, I think she needs to be honored with her own statue. Once we get that statue out of the way, I think we need to, to start thinking about getting a statue for William Still. We've been speaking with Andrew Deemer. He is the author of Vigilance, The Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.